would take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Exodus, chapter number 4. Exodus, chapter 4. Last week when we were together, we looked at Exodus 3, where God appeared to Moses in a burning bush, a bush that burned but was not consumed. Moses was on the backside of nowhere, hiding from himself and everyone else, and God appeared to him there in the fiery bush. God revealed himself to Moses there in a way that was special to Moses. For the first time, God revealed his specific name. God had been known to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in a general sense. In fact, he'd been known in a quite personal sense. But never before had God been known so specifically as he revealed himself to Moses there. And he gives Moses there the charge. You are to go and to be the, the deliverer of the people of Israel in Egypt. And you are to be the bearer of the good news and the bad news to Pharaoh that he is now to let my people go. It was good news for the Israelites. It was bad news for the Egyptian economy. Pharaoh, or Moses rather responds to that message in chapter 4. I want us to consider together the way that Moses responds. I think there are probably some considerable parallels between Moses' response to what God calls him to do here and our frequent, frequent responses to what God is calling us to do in our lives. And I, and, I, and I want you to think in terms, at least a little, if you would, uh, as to how you would respond to God's call or how you have responded to God's call when he calls you to do something that you've never done before. I mean, if we're frank with ourselves, it's a scary thing when God calls us I can remember the early days of ministry, you're in conversations with other brothers about their call to ministry. I was never one who, who really ran away from that, mostly because I, I didn't have the good sense to run away from that, I suppose. But, but, but many people do. It's a, it's a frightening thing. We tend to be resistant to what God calls us to do. And even in the context of, of our salvation, th there can be reluctance or resistance, as we see in the, on the part of of, of Moses here. I just want us to think about where we are in answering the call of, of God in our life. We described in the nine o'clock services putting our yes on the table, simply saying, Lord, just as you are ours, we are yours. Do with us as you will. May your will be done in us. And I, and I want us to ask of ourselves, each of us, to ask of ourselves this morning what God is, is uniquely calling us to do or perhaps collectively calling us to do. And I, I'm not talking about those strange things that middle school boys come and talk to me about, like God's called me to ask so-and-so on a date. Unless her name is Grace or Peter, you didn't find that in the Bible. I, I, I mean the specifics, the hard and fast, the black and white things that God has instructed us to do. Repent and believe. Go and make disciples of all nations. Flee the very appearance of, of evil and immorality. There are some hard and fast things that God has called us to, and we've got to wrestle with those commands, the call of God in our life. Exodus 4, we're going to begin reading in verse number 1. If you found your way there, let's stand together out of respect and honor for the reading of God's Word. Moses' response to the call of God in his life begins in verse 1. His first response is, what if they won't believe me and will not obey me, but say, the Lord didn't appear to you? And the Lord asked him, what's that in your hand? A staff, he replied. Then he said, throw it on the ground. He threw it on the ground and it became a snake. 
Moses ran from it, but the Lord told him, stretch out your hand and grab it by the tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. This will take place, he continued, so they will believe that Yahweh, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to you. In addition, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. So he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, his hand was diseased, white as snow. Then he said, put your hand back inside your cloak. He put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, it had become again like the rest of his skin. If they'll not believe you and will not respond to the evidence of the first sign, they may believe the evidence of the second sign. And if they don't believe even these two signs or listen to what you say, take some water from the Nile, pour it on dry ground. The water you take from the Nile will become blood on the ground. But Moses replied to the Lord, Please, Lord, I've never been eloquent either in the past or recently since you've been speaking to your servant because I'm slow and hesitant in speech. And Yahweh said to him, Who made the human mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and I will teach you what to say. Moses said, Please, Lord, send someone else. The Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, Isn't Aaron, the Levite, your brother? I know that he can speak well, and also he's on his way to meet you. He will, he will rejoice when he sees you. You will speak with him and tell him what to say. I will help both you and him to speak and will teach you both what to do. He will speak to the people for you. He will be your spokesman, and you will serve as God to him. Take this staff in your hand that you will perform the signs with. Then Moses went back to his father-in-law Jethro and said to him, Please let me return to my relatives in Egypt and see if they're still living. Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Now in Midian, the Lord told Moses, Return to Egypt, for all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took God's staff in his hand. The Lord instructed Moses, When you go back to Egypt... Make sure you do all the wonders before Pharaoh that I put within your power. But I will harden his heart so that he won't let the people go. Then you will say to Pharaoh, this is what Yahweh says, Israel is my firstborn son. I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go. Now I will kill your firstborn son. On the trip at an overnight campsite, it happened that the Lord confronted him and sought to put him to death. So Zipporah took a flint, cut off her son's foreskin, and threw it at Moses' feet. Then she said, You're a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. At that time, she said, You're a bridegroom of blood, referring to the circumcision. Now the Lord had said to Aaron, Go and meet Moses in the wilderness. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say and about all the signs he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the Israelites. Aaron repeated everything the Lord had said to Moses and performed the signs before the people. The people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had paid attention to them and that he had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Here God has called Moses, and Moses responds in what I think is almost a standard human response. He says in verse 1, 
Lord, what if they don't believe? In essence, he says, they'll never believe this. First of all, God, I'm a murderer. I'm a Hebrew, but I was raised as an Egyptian. So I'm standing straddle of these two competing cultures. I have zero credibility either with the Hebrews for my Egyptian upbringing or with the Egyptians for my Hebrew background. I'm not convinced they'll believe. Besides the fact that for many, many years I've been living in the land of Midian. They won't believe. They'll never believe. God says, let's do this. Take the staff in your hand and cast it down, and it became a serpent. God said to Moses, take the serpent again by the tail. There's a lot of faith involved in that move there. If you're going to grab a serpent, which I don't recommend, you don't want to grab it by the tail. I'm not grabbing it at all, but, but you don't want to grab it by the tail. And the serpent turned into a staff once more. Apparently, Moses is not satisfied. At least God wanted to leave him uh, well equipped to, to combat any unbelief on the part of the Israelites or of Pharaoh. And he further instructed him, take your hand and put it in your cloak. And when he removed it, it was as white as snow. It was diseased. And then he instructed him again, put your hand back in your cloak. And when he removed it again, it was whole, it was healthy, it was well. And then God said, if those two signs aren't sufficient to convince the people of Israel or Pharaoh, here's the third sign. Go down to the Nile River, which was understood culturally and religiously in Egypt to be the source of all life. Dip a bucket of water, bring it back to the people, pour it out on dry ground. And when that bucket of water is poured out on dry ground, it will become blood before the people. And in spite of these evidences that God had given Moses, these miracles that would lend credibility to his ministry, that, that would give a, a authority to Moses and his message, Moses says in verse 10, please, Lord, I have never been eloquent either in the past or recently since you've been speaking to your servant because I'm slow and hesitant in speech. There's all kinds of conjecture about what Moses is referring to here when he says, I'm, I'm hesitant or slow in speech. I'm, I'm not eloquent. Many have suggested he had some sort of speech impediment. Some have suggested that this was the product of straddling the two cultures we mentioned a moment ago. He would know some Hebrew. He would know some Egyptian. But perhaps because neither of them were terribly natural to him, he didn't feel he had the speaking ability to speak to both cultures simultaneously or to communicate with Pharaoh in a way that was appropriate to the court of Pharaoh. Whatever the case would be, it really makes no difference. Moses understands himself to be incapable of doing what God has called him to do. He said, there's never been a time in my life when I was eloquent. And even since you began speaking to me here at the burning bush, I've not noticed any supernatural changes taking place in my ability to articulate this message that you've given me. I just don't have the ability. And God said to him in verse 11, this, this ought to be a word of encouragement to any who felt some inability kept them back from doing what God had called them to do. God said, who made your mouth, Moses? Who makes man mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I'll help you speak, and I will teach you what you should say. Having run out of excuses, Moses says in verse 13, Please, Lord, just send someone else. You ever felt that way? You ever felt as though, you know, this is what God would have me to do, that I really wish God would send someone else to do it? 
I think, I think Moses' excuse-making here is pretty consistent with our excuse-making. Our resistance to answering the call of God and the excuses we offer for failing to answer the call of God are as old as Moses. Think about what they are just quickly. A lack of faith. When, when he says, Lord, they're not going to believe, he says that in the face of a God who has just instructed him, when you go, there'll be some bumps, Pharaoh's heart will be hardened, but in the end, my people are coming out of their Egyptian bondage. God had given Moses the unique privilege of witnessing the end from the beginning. He's, he's very forthright in that there'll be some difficulties along the way, but you're going to win. You're going to have the victory. His resistance here is nothing short of a lack of faith, a lack of trust, a lack of confidence that God can do what he's now promised he would do. Now think about that in the context of God's call in our life, the call of salvation, the call of the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations. So many times we're resistant to that. We can't see it through. We don't see how a person's heart can be turned, how, how the world could be turned upside down by the power of the gospel. Yet God has given us as believers in Christ the unique privilege of seeing the end from the beginning. Jesus said, I have sheep that are not yet of this fold. There are people there that I will unmistakably work in their life. You cannot overturn what God intends to do in the world. God, again, has given us the privilege of seeing the end from the beginning. There is coming a day, make no mistake about it, when Christ comes to cleanse and to claim his church forevermore. Jesus is coming again on the glory of the clouds. Christ is coming. The victory is assured. We see the end even from the beginning. The victory is not ours to achieve. The victory has been achieved through our Savior Christ. He has overcome the world. Our reticence to do what God has called us to do with this unique insight, the end from the beginning, is foolhardy at best. Moses simply lacks faith that God will do what he says he'll do. I'll let you in on a little secret about God. He always keeps his promises. In verses 10 through 12, Moses says, I'm not very eloquent. I'm, I'm not sure that I have the ability that I need to have to do what you've called me to do. We're going to come back to this in the second point of our outline here, but, but this is huge. This is huge. Moses just lacks confidence. Now, I'll say to you in a moment that his lack of confidence here is rooted in a misunderstanding of the nature of ministry itself. But I, I want to encourage you here that God always, always, always equips us to do what he calls us to do. God never issues a command. He doesn't grant us the power to see through. He's faithful that way. He's not left us out here wringing our hands, wondering how it is that we'll accomplish the task to which he's called us. Your ability your personal ability is not a factor in kingdom advancement. In fact, we're a lot more likely to let our personal ability get in the way of kingdom advancement than our personal ability is to contribute to kingdom advancement. There is a strange phenomenon in preaching. You could poll any preacher, they'll all tell you the same. They're, they're all, and preaching is like anything else. You know, you, sometimes you go to work and you feel like, man, I had a great day. 
everything went smoothly. I was, I was in a situation where I was able to demonstrate competence in this area. My, my skills in this vocation were on full display. And you just feel really good about it. Preachers operate the same way. There's Sundays when, I, when I, I, I get to the office and always go and just sit and sort of exhale for a moment. I think, man, I did a good job today. <laughs> and then there are Sundays when I go and I sit down and I think, well, that stunk. A couple more of those and nobody will come back to church at Longview Point. I think, I think that way. And here's what I've experienced over the course of ministry and always brings a little smile to my face on the days when I really feel like I flubbed a dub. And, and it sort of crushes me a little bit on the days when I feel like, man, that was good. In my experience, the Lord does his greatest work when I'm at my worst. And, and when, I, when I begin to allow that just an inkling of pride begin, begin to enter in as though my ability to communicate somehow or exegete a passage or insight into the biblical language somehow contributed to something that morning, Regardless of how good I have assessed the sermon as being, very rarely does God work under those circumstances. Your ability is a lot more likely to get in the way than it is to do anything to contribute to the advancement of the kingdom. Because it's not about your ability. It's about the power and the, the work of God's Holy Spirit in us. It's a lack of confidence on the part of Moses, a lack of faith, a lack of confidence, and then a lack of responsibility. When his excuses run out, he just says, God, send somebody else. Don't you have any other people that can serve this way? Here's my pet peeve in, in ministry when inviting people to come to service. Not come to service like worship service, but to volunteer in certain areas. Never say this to your pastor. Well, if you can't find anyone else... Oh, I hate that. We'll just mark you off, move on down the list. Moses says, just send somebody else. Now, we've all responded like Moses, with a lack of faith, with a lack of confidence, with a lack of a sense of responsibility. And here's what I want you to see, and it's all through verses 1 through 17. Our reluctance and the reluctance of Moses is always rooted in a faulty understanding of ministry. You, you, you won't be held up by a lack of confidence in your ability when you understand that success, that fruitfulness in ministry is not about personal ability. It's about the power of God's Holy Spirit at work in us. And you've got to separate yourself from that idea early on or you will become so puffed up with pride you're of no kingdom value or, or become so discouraged that you can barely get yourselves up in the morning. If it's about personal ability, then either you'll beat your chest at what you've achieved personally, and in all likelihood, it will be what you've achieved personally with no eternal value, or you'll become so discouraged when you see what God does through the lives and ministries of others, you'll wonder what's wrong with you, how you've become broken, and the despair might be more than what you can bear. I, I want you to know that meaningful ministry is not done in the power of mankind. It's, it happens through the Spirit of the Lord, not by power, not by might, but by your Spirit, saith the Lord. 
that there is a power that abides within us as believers in the gospel that is able to overcome any spirit this world brings to bear against us. Moses seems to fail to understand that this is not about his heroism as the great deliverer of Israel. This is about the power of God working through Moses to bring his people out of their bondage. Now that may seem like a very elementary thing for you, but I'm telling you when your heart lays hold of that truth, that it's not about you, it is so liberating. It, it will make you smile when you feel like you totally flood the dove on a Sunday morning. When you, when you boggle your explanation of the gospel, you'll be able to walk away and say, salvation is of the Lord, God, it's in your hands. On your absolute worst day, you can rest in the power of God at work in you and through you. And, and when you feel that you don't have the gifts and abilities that someone else has, some people just seem to have all the gifts, don't they? Aren't you envious of some people as you see them do what they do? If, 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 you're, if you've not been, at some point, you've probably not been observing other people doing what they do. We're all gifted uniquely. And some people are, are gifted powerfully. We watch them work, and we wish we had the ability to, to move and work and do ministry with such ease. And yet it's not about that. It's not about that. It's about just putting our yes on the table, saying, God, here I am. Use me as you'd be pleased to use me. God always equips us for the work he calls us to do. You know the fascinating thing about this passage? Moses says, God, I'm not eloquent. I can't speak. Can you send someone else? And already God was at work preparing Aaron as his assistant. Did you notice that in the passage? God, God did not say, Moses, I'm going to tell Aaron to get started in this direction so he can meet you and do ministry. See, Moses gets some things right. Moses knows he doesn't have the ability, and you don't either. And Moses knows he needs help in the work, and you need help in the work too. Even before Moses objects, God is raising Aaron up as his spokesman, as his spokesperson, who will be an assistant and aid to Moses for the duration of his life and ministry. Are you encouraged? I, I, I think this kind of excuse-making is relevant even for those of you who are outside the family of faith. If you don't know Christ, this is the kind of excuse-making response that, that I tend to hear in sharing the gospel with people. Well, this is just not as practical for me. I'm not sure. A lack of faith. Or I, I'm going to, this is really probably more relevant, I'm going to get some parts of my life together. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop drinking or abusing substances or I'm I'm going to stop with whatever the pet sin is that seems to be plaguing me most. And when I get all that together, I'm going to start going to church, and I'm going to be baptized, and I'm going to get it all in order. And what I want you to see, what I want you to know is what, what, we're, what we're on the trail of here, that apart from the work of Jesus in your life, you will never get it together. That the gospel is not about growing up, it's not about wising up, it's not about maturing, it's not about just making better decisions in life. The gospel is about crying out desperately to Jesus and saying, Lord, only you can do for me what must be done. I am broken, I am dead in my sins and trespasses, and I will continue down this path until you intervene in my life and save my soul from sin. God, do for me what only you can do. Do for me what I cannot do for myself. There's a sort of a mysterious part of this passage in verses 18 through 26, one of the more mysterious passages in all of the scripture. 
Moses goes back to his father-in-law Jethro, and he says, I'm headed back to Egypt. We, we're, we're told in these verses that, uh, that the old Pharaoh has died, that the men have passed, leadership has changed, so he can go back without fear for his life. He's to go to the new Pharaoh and, and insist that he be uh, let go or that the people of Israel be let go. And God says, I'm going to harden his heart so that he won't let the people go. And this is what God says in verse 22. When, when Pharaoh's heart is hardened, then you will say to Pharaoh, this is what Yahweh says. Israel is my firstborn son. I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go. Now I'll kill your firstborn son. So that's the introduction to this sort of confusing few verses that comes next. Now listen to verses 24 through 26. On the trip at an overnight campsite, it happened that the Lord confronted him, him being Moses, and sought to put him to death. So Zipporah took a flint, cut off her son's foreskin, and threw it at Moses' feet. Then she said, you're a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. At that time, she said, you're a bridegroom of blood referring to the circumcision. Now, if, if we have any volunteers from the congregation this morning who'd like to come explain that passage, you're welcome at this time. There are a few things that, we, that are really confounding about those verses and what's happening there. So here, here's a scene. God says, Pharaoh will not do what he's told to do, so I'm going to kill his firstborn son. Now, that's an ominous word, to say the least. And then in the next passage, the next three verses... Moses had not done what God instructed him to do. Namely, he had not circumcised his son. And God came after him at an overnight camp. Moses almost lost his life because he failed to obey God. Now, the crazy thing here is that his wife, who's not an Israelite, who should have barely known about the rite of circumcision, quickly circumcises the son that Moses had been disobedient in circumcising, throws the foreskin at his feet and calls him a bridegroom of blood. Therein lies the mystery. What's all that about? Again, there's something that we can't know or don't know about that passage, but it's clear that God is deadly serious about our, our obeying his word, and Moses gets no exemption. So here, here's the thing that we can do, and church folks are bad about this. We read the Bible as though it, it's for somebody else. I, I can't tell you the number of times in, in life and ministry that I've preached sermons and I thought, those folks back there, that section, if they'll get this message, and then they all come by and they say, boy, pastor, I wish so-and-so would have been here. He really needed to hear about that this morning. And, and, and even in our personal devotional times, teachers, you better be on guard. You'll start reading the Bible for somebody else and fail to read the Bible for you. And I just want you to know that no one disobeys the Lord's command without consequence. That the Bible is not first for someone else, it is for you. And that God is deadly serious about our obedience to what he calls us to do. Moses is not exempt. Pharaoh is not exempt. Now think about that. Here, here's a man who holds the highest office in the civilized world, Pharaoh. And he will come under the judgment of God for failing to do what God's word has instructed. And here is Moses, perhaps second only to Jesus for his heroism in the scripture. And Moses is not exempt from the consequences of his disobedience to God and his word. Again, I think there's more there that we don't know than we do know, but that principle seems abundantly clear. 
verse 27, the Bible says, The Lord had said to Aaron, Go and meet Moses in the wilderness. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say and about all the signs he commanded him to do. Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the Israelites. Aaron repeated everything the Lord had said to Moses and performed the signs before the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had paid attention to them, that he had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. Can you believe that? They did what God had promised they would do in spite of the fact that Moses insisted that they wouldn't. When it comes to the call of God on our life, you had better get with the program or get out of the way. One of my favorite stories in all the scripture, in 2 Kings 6, there's this great famine. And the prophet of God says, tomorrow you're going to buy groceries at a discount rate. In fact, you're going to buy groceries for cheaper than you bought groceries in the history of Israel. And there, there's a man in the king's court who laughs and says, ain't no way you're buying groceries at that rate tomorrow. But on the following day, there were four lepers who were outside the city walls, and they, they, they discovered that, that the camp outside the city, the cause of the famine, it had been evacuated. And they go out, and the invading army had left all their stuff and all their groceries there. They're just lying around. And they, they eat their fill first, but they eventually go back. They feel guilty, and they tell the people in the city. All, all the, the groceries are laying out here. They're, they're, they're virtually free. They're ours for the taking. And the man who had once laughed about the prophecy that groceries will be at a discount rate tomorrow was standing there at the gate. And when the people inside the city walls, starving, famished, heard about discount groceries outside the city, they ran the man over and he died. He was able to see discount groceries from a distance, but they never crossed his lips. And, and I'm, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, there are times I'm convinced when God affords us the opportunity to be a part of his work, but for our reluctance and even sometimes our resistance, we're able to see his glory from a distance, but it never crosses our lips. I wonder if there are any of you this morning that have been resistant or to or reluctant to follow after the call of God in your life. Church folks, you know that God has called you to share the good news of the gospel, and you've had 10,000 reasons as to why you can't. And I want you to know this morning, it's not about your ability. It's not about your charisma, your personality, your natural ability to connect to win friends and influence people. It's about faithfulness to do what Jesus has charged you to do. There may be unique special callings that God has placed on your life. I'm praying that, that in the Global Impact Conference coming up next week that God raises up from within our congregation men and women who will be faithful to go and to plant their lives among the nations and to, to bear the good news even in difficult places. There, there may be some of you here this morning and God has called you to be a pastor or to be a minister in some capacity and you know that God's called you to that but you've had a million reasons as to why you couldn't do it. And I would just encourage you this morning to answer the call of God, to trust the Lord, that as he's called you, he'll equip you to do what he's called you to do. If you're here this morning and, and you don't have a saving relationship with Jesus, 
and you've got a million reasons as to why you could not respond positively to the call of the gospel, why you couldn't say yes to Jesus, I want you to know that they're all broken, faulty, and crazy excuses that will do you no good whatsoever when you stand before the judgment seat of God. I really believe, listen to me, I really believe with all of my heart that Jesus is the difference between life and death, heaven and hell. And when Jesus is the difference between life and death, heaven and hell, it affects the way we live our life in millions and millions of ways. Everything about the way we see the world and the way we walk each day is radically transformed by that reality. Are you walking in the light of Jesus Christ? Every decision, every outlook shaped by the belief that Jesus is the difference between life and death, between heaven and hell. I, w I want you to know this morning that in the face of all of your excuses, and listen, I've heard them all, that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and that no man comes to the Father but by him. That what Christ has done for us through his death on the cross, through his resurrection from a garden grave three days later, from his position of power at the right hand of God, only he can do. Jesus has done for you what you cannot do for yourselves. Come to him. We're going to, in just a moment, have a time of invitation and just say, if the Lord's at work in your life, if he's speaking, if he's calling, answer his call. And, and I just want to encourage you once more to, to, to do what God calls you to do, to taste and to see that he is good, that he always keeps his promises, to delight in this reality that he's given us the ability to see the end from the beginning and to follow faithfully as he sends us out.